Good morning again. Maybe you're someone who doesn't play video games, but maybe you some, you're someone who does. And if you do, you probably know one of the most popular video game franchises is called The Legend of Zelda. It's had many, many games throughout the years. But in the very first game, which came out back in 1986, very early in the game, your hero you're playing has named Link. He meets an old man in a cave. And the old man offers him a sword and says these words, it's dangerous to go alone. Take this. It's a well-known video game moment, and it's been referenced in many other games and movies, spoofed many different times. But it popped into my head as I was thinking about our scripture passage today, because there's a valuable truth in that simple phrase. It is dangerous to go it alone in life. And we all need some help. Now, in our daily lives, a sword probably isn't much help, even though we may think it would be in certain situations. What we really need is someone to help us. We need help getting through the big challenges of life, as well as the daily battles that we all experience. When times are hard, we need encouragement. We'd like some sympathy, someone to empathize with what we're going through. Sometimes we may deceive ourselves into thinking, you know what, I don't need help. I actually can go it alone, on my own. But the truth is, if we're honest, we desperately need someone to go with us through the struggles of life. Now you can try to find that faithful partner, perhaps in a romantic relationship, maybe in, in a family member or your friends. Maybe you try to find it by connecting with uh, an online group. But if we're honest, any relationship that we have that we think is going to support us through everything, it, it never fully satisfies. And this isn't even throwing in God into the equation. God, this great, powerful God, how in the world can I find Him, connect to Him? He often seems so far off. He seems so distant from me. And we realize, I, I need somebody to help me know Him. I need someone to stand between us. Well, the good news we'll discover today is that Jesus can do both of those things. He can stand between us and God. He can bring us to know Him. And He can be with us in all the challenges that we encounter. He is the answer that we're looking for. In our passage today, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, will tell us that. We don't need to fly solo through life because Jesus is truly better than going it alone. So if you're not already there, I encourage you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews 4, we look at verses 14 through 16. You can use the blue Bible in the seat back in front of you. The words will also be on the screen. Once you are there, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word and then follow along as I read our passage for today. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. The author writes this, starting in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. 
Lord, we know from experience that it is truly dangerous to try to go through life alone. God, thank you for your Son. Help us to see in your Word how he has gone back to heaven and how he is able to understand what we're going through because he was tempted, but he did not sin. Lord, may that encourage us. May it lead us to hold firm to what we have believed. May we draw near to you so that by drawing near to you, God, you may give us the mercy and the grace that we so desperately need. I pray, Lord, that we may see Jesus clearly and see what he does for us in our time together today. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to remind ourselves where we are. So we're in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. This is a letter that an unknown preacher wrote to some Jewish background believers in Jesus. They used to practice Judaism. They were Hebrew people, but now they were followers of Christ. But there's a problem because it seems some of these people he's writing to, they want to go back to their old way of life. And the author's message for them is Jesus is better. That's our focus in this series. The passage we're reading today begins with since then. It's pointing us back. He's making an argument that he started in chapter 2. This is the conclusion to what he's been saying. The author has started by saying Jesus is better than angels. You don't need angels to be between you and God. You have Jesus. And he said Jesus is better than Moses or any other human hero that you have. He is the great go-between. In fact, the author called him a high priest. We saw this back in verse 17. He said, therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers, like people in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So he could make propitiation. We talked about that means he could satisfy God's wrath for the sins of the people. Now we'll talk more about the idea of Jesus being a high priest in a moment, but the point the author is saying is Jesus is better, Hebrew believers. If you want to know God, Jesus is the only way. And our passage today is a transition. He's leaving talking about angels and Moses, and he's really going to focus on this idea of Jesus as a high priest. He's able to serve in that role because Jesus not only came from heaven, but he went back to heaven. If you're using the outline, the first point today is that Jesus went back to heaven. Now, if you've heard of Jesus, you may think, okay, he was someone who lived a long time ago. He lived here on earth, but now he's no longer here on earth. We read at the very beginning of the book that after Jesus made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus now sits at God's right hand as a great high priest. That's what our passage tells us, that this one who has passed through the heavens is Jesus, who is a human high priest, but he's also the Son of God. In fact, he says he is a great, a superior high priest. Okay, I've said it a lot, so let, let's talk about it. What does it mean that Jesus is a high priest? What in the world is he talking about? We, we don't necessarily have that today. Well, remember, he's writing to Hebrew people. In Judaism, they had someone who was the role of the high priest, the chief priest, the chief representative of the people before God. This was a man who would go between the people of Israel and God and represent them. But there was a key, oh, there was a key part of this. Only on one day a year 
could this priest go into the part of whether it was a tent, a tabernacle, or a temple? Only one day could he go into the sacred part that represented God's presence. He had to offer certain sacrifices, and then one day he could go in there to represent the people before God. Jesus, though, is someone different. He was born as a human. We're about to celebrate that at Christmas. And he lived a perfect life. When he died, he was raised to life, and now he's permanently ascended to heaven. Unlike those old high priests, Jesus is always in God's actual presence in heaven. He has unique access to God. He's right there with the heavenly Father. The fact that Jesus ascended to heaven proved that God accepted him as people's representative. Because he is there, we are now accepted by God. And if we know him, he represents us too. One scholar, Michael J. Kruger, wrote, if you're a follower of Jesus, then he will never, ever stop loving you, pleading your case, and representing you before God. And it also means that if we truly know him, he is always there for us. He's there for us, and he's there to represent us to God. Well, the question is, what in the world does that mean to me? What difference does that actually make in my life? What should be my response to the fact that Jesus is this high priest pastor? Well, the author tells us. So his application is at the last part of verse 14, let us hold firm to him. Let us hold fast to our confession of faith and what we believe. That's what the passage says. Since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast or hold firm to our confession. This is the author saying again his challenge in this book of Hebrews. He is challenging these Hebrew Believers, don't abandon Jesus. He's better than anything else you want to hold on to. So hold on to him instead. This is a call to persevere. He's telling them, maintain your enduring commitment to Jesus, your commitment to faith in him. Something interesting is this verse, verse 14, is actually the first time Jesus' name shows up in this book. Now, you may find that strange, especially if you've been here for a while. Pastor, you've preached like 10 sermons already on the book of Hebrews, and you've talked about Jesus a lot. Yeah, the whole book's about him, but here in particular, the author brings in his name for the first time. And he does that to make a point, to make the point that this Jesus, this Son of God, he is the basis, the foundation for us holding firm to him. He's a real person who provided real salvation to us, to us. We could not earn it, but he did. And now he graciously gives that salvation to those who know him, to those who turn away from sin and believe and trust in what he has done. And if we've done that, we should keep our allegiance to him because he keeps his commitment to us. Later in the book of Hebrews, the author will use this, these same words again. He'll say, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And the reason we should do that is because he who promised is faithful. He has done the work. We have no reason to doubt, no reason to waver. So we hold on to him. But we also hold on to our confession, our, the good news of what he has actually done for us. This good news, this gospel that he's given us. The Apostle Paul uses words like this in the book of Romans. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It says it's with the heart one believes and is justified, made right with God. It's with the mouth that one confesses and is saved. A confession is something we believe, but it's also something we say, we proclaim. Have you done that? Have you said, yes, Jesus is my Lord. He is the one who is in control of my life. Have you claimed him as your Savior? If you have not done so, I pray you would talk to someone about doing that today because he is the only one who can bring us to God. For Christians, this is a truth that we know and we should live by. We should persist in clinging to him through the trials of life. It's not something we earn or achieve. We hold firm to what Jesus has done for us. And the author gives us some encouragement about how we can do that better. The encouragement he gives us is that Jesus was tempted, but he was without sin. Jesus was tempted, but without sin. In order for him to die uh, for us, he had to experience the temptation that we feel, to sin, to rebel against God. And as it says in verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This temptation is being enticed to do something wrong. The desire being placed in front of us, whether it's something big like murder or adultery or or something little like disobeying something God has said because we want to do something else in that moment. This passage tells us that Jesus sympathizes with our weakness, our temptation to sin against God. Now, your translation might not have sympathize, it might have empathize. And there's some people who want to have a big debate. Are Christians supposed to be sympathetic or empathetic? Is Jesus sympathetic or empathetic? But I don't think it matters because I think both are true here. Both should be modeled by God's people. Jesus has sympathy for us. He has compassion on our situation. He understands the temptations that are unique to each of us. And he also empathizes with us. He can identify with us. He's experienced the same kinds of things that we have. He was tempted. He understands how hard it is to live for God. He understands what we're going through. It's so helpful to be able to talk to somebody, know somebody who's gone through something similar. I know my, uh, my father had experience with cancer a few years ago, and now he serves as a hospital chaplain. And part of the reason that he decided to do that was because he'd be able to talk to people who are in serious sickness about the hope that's in Christ. And he can say, I was right where you were in that bed, and so I understand where you are. And that's such, so helpful to be able to talk to somebody who understands our situation, who's experienced the same or something similar. And like a hospital chaplain who goes to visit the sick, what draws Jesus to us is not that we're strong, not that we're great, not that we've achieved a lot of things, but what draws Jesus to us, our verse says, he sympathizes with our weakness. It's the very fact that we struggle with sin, that things are hard for us. That's what draws him to us, to want to help us. He doesn't need us to try harder, to be better. He needs us to admit that we have a problem and to call out, to him for help. There's even more encouragement in this verse because then it says that in every respect, Jesus has been tempted as we are, 
yet without sin. He's been tempted, tested in every way, every respect, every point like us. Now, if you want to be picky about it, no, Jesus didn't have the internet. No, he didn't have social media. He never got into a Facebook argument. But he experienced the same kinds of temptations that we do. The same draw of lust, of greed, of unforgiveness, of dishonesty. Those kinds of temptation that are true for all people. The opportunity to spend more time dwelling on sin. The opportunity to think about it. The opportunity to long for sin. The opportunity to act on a sinful desire. That was present. And so while the expressions and tools of sin have changed in the past 2,000 years, the nature of sin has not. It still attacks the same desires in us. But the good news here is that no temptation that we have is strange to Jesus. I'm like, well, that's weird. I never struggled with that. No, no, the same types of temptation he experienced. He understands the pool of temptation. And just think about how strong it would have been for him. He's Jesus. He's God. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And many times, we can read several times in Scripture, I'm not going to them today, but there was a temptation there to speed up God's plan or achieve it in a different way. Well, it was the devil telling him, you can rule everything right now. You don't have to do this. Or in the garden when he had to ask God for the strength and endurance to face the cross in front of him. Jesus understands how hard it is to follow God, to do what he says. He also understands the temptations that come from suffering. We know from what we can look at Scripture and also some tradition beyond that, he experienced the death of loved ones. He probably experienced the pain of poverty. But even more than that, by dying to pay for sin, he experienced a suffering far beyond what any of us will experience. When we struggle, we long for someone to understand, someone who's been there before. Jesus always understands. He always gets it far better than perhaps even we do. But even with that temptation, our verse tells us that he was without sin. He remained sinless. He never gave in. He did not let that temptation that was there become sin in his heart. Jesus was human in every respect, just like us. The, the only difference was he didn't have, he did not sin. He did not have a sin nature. He always resisted. He experienced temptation, but not the experience of sin. A couple other passages talk about that. In 1 Peter, it says he committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. 1 John says, you know, he appeared in order to take away sins. In him, there is no sin. And this is a very important part of our Christian faith because if Christ had sinned, if he had just done a little sin here or there, then his death wouldn't have paid for us to be restored to God. He wouldn't have been a perfect sacrifice. Some talk about Jesus as if he was just leaving us a good example. Jesus has done this, so we should do what he does as well. But Jesus is more than that. He took the punishment that should have been ours. And because he did that, if we know him, now his perfect righteousness and goodness is credited to our account. The fact that he was perfect, that's now given to us. Think about it like a school assignment. 
And I say you have to write, you have to write a paper. And you, your paper is the story of your life. And you write the paper and you turn it in. But when the teacher God gets it, he looks at your paper and he sees Jesus's perfect grade and not your many mistakes and failures. That's what it's like if we know him. He looks at us and sees Jesus who lived perfectly. That's what makes him a true, holy high priest. We'll read in chapter 7 that it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And what that means is he has no need like those human high priests to offer sacrifices daily, those mere humans, those sinful men. He doesn't have to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for the people. Jesus did this once for all when he offered up himself. He offered one perfect sacrifice, his holy life. That means he's able to stand in the gap for us at all times. He doesn't need to make himself pure before God. He already is and will be forever. Now again, you may say, so what, Pastor? What, what? So Jesus was tempted, but he didn't sin. What in the world does that mean for my life? What, what should I do? Well, Again, our text tells us, let us draw near. Let us draw near. We are called to confidently draw near. I think the emphasis here is prayer, drawing near to God. Verse 16 tells us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. If we know Jesus, we have been forgiven. God looks at us and he sees Jesus. And what that means is he looks and he sees his son so we can come and approach God as a heavenly father. We'll also read in Hebrews 7 that he is able to save to the uttermost, save us completely, those who draw near to God through him. He always lives to make intercession for us, to bring us into God's presence. And so we're called to continually come before him we have the ongoing privilege of a relationship with God. It's not like those old high priests. Remember, they could just come before God one time a year. Oh, but we have something so much more. We can come all the time and whenever we want. And look what it says. We can do this with confidence, with boldness and courage. We can come before God. Now, that doesn't mean with arrogance and pride strutting before God, but confident that when we go to God, we will be received. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, this was according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whom in him we have boldness, access with confidence through our faith in him. If we have faith, then we can boldly go right to God. Sometimes I, I don't think we... We ponder that too much. I think we brush that aside. A prayer is something we say quickly before a meal. Oh, but, but friends, we have the boldness, the confidence. We can come right before the Lord and the creator of the universe. Whenever we want, the one who's over everything we see, made everything we see, shaped you into the unique person you are, you can come right before that God. You can't do that with most other figures of authority. If you want to go to the White House, meet the president, there, there's a long checklist I have to go, many security checkpoints to get in there. But with God, anytime, you can go right to him. 
You don't need a pastor to, to direct you in, in the way to make that connection. You don't need a so-called saint. You, you don't need a priest to represent you. You don't need a guru. You don't need an angel to bring you to God. If you know Jesus, if you're a part of his people, then you are welcomed in the Lord's presence. And when you're there in God's presence, you can speak plainly and honestly with him. You don't have to pretend or hide over, gloss over the messy parts of your life. Pastor Charles Spurgeon said, when we tell our Lord the story of our inward grief, he understands it better than we do. If you've followed the Lord for a while, maybe you can relate to this kind of experience. I often find some of my best times of prayer with God are not really prayers that I could write down. They're not beautiful flowing ones, although there's room for taking the time to to write what we're feeling to God. But I find the times that, I don't know, like I'm really praying, maybe the only words I'm actually saying are, God, help me, help me. I can't even put into words what's happening to me, but I can communicate to God my need. I don't have to have well-formed sentences. I can just say, God, please help me. Now, when I'm saying this, that doesn't mean that we should be disrespectful or, or silly in prayer. We should be reverent and respectful, not being like, God, please give me that fancy, shiny car over there. That, that's not the type of thing we should communicate with him about. But we can be honest, raw, authentic. That's the freedom we have in Christ. We don't have to put on a show for God because he knows us better than we know ourselves. And whether the things we need are big or very little in the grand scheme of the universe. We can ask him. We can talk to him about it. The author of our book will summarize this in chapter 10. He'll say, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have the confidence to enter those holy places by the blood of Jesus, a new and living way he's opened for us through that curtain in the temple, through his flesh, we now have a great high priest over the house of God. What should we do? Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus has already done the work to bring us to God. Even if we sin, even if we mess up, we can still come to Him. In fact, we're encouraged to do so. In 1 John it says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't have to pretend I didn't sin. We can confess it honestly. But maybe you're still wondering, why should we do all this? Okay, I, I get, Pastor John, that Jesus went to heaven and that he was tempted, but he never sinned. And I see that we're called to hold on to him and that we can draw near to him. But why? Is there something that I get out of this? Well, actually, yes. Yes, there is. There is. Our text tells us that we receive mercy and grace to help. The very last phrase of our passage, remember verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Remember what's happening in this book. This author is desperately trying to convince his audience, appealing to this Hebrew audience, telling them Jesus is truly better. Maybe they were struggling with this. Maybe they were thinking, you know what? The Judaism I grew up with what was so much simpler than Christianity thing, this knowing Jesus, living for him. I mean, in the type of cultural Judaism that I grew up in, I would 
you know, rest on the Sabbath on Saturday. A couple times a year I'd go to a festival, I'd offer a sacrifice, and then I'd go home. That was it. That was a simple religion. That was a religion I can do myself. It wasn't this small little Christian faith. It wasn't hard to follow. Jesus didn't fully change my life. I can do it alone. If I go back to that, I can do it alone, and I'll be fine with God and in life. And our author, I feel in these verses, he's desperately trying to tell them, no, no, it is too hard. It is too dangerous to go alone. Jesus is here to help you. Sometimes we lie to ourselves, but the truth is that we cannot live, cannot truly live and thrive in life without God's mercy and grace. Someday, our life will end. We'll appear before God. And if we're without Jesus, then God's throne is a place of judgment where our sins are judged and condemned. But in Jesus, that throne is now a place of mercy, grace, and help. The scholar Charles Hodge wrote, God is enthroned in all His majesty, justice, and holiness, but it is upon a throne of grace. And therefore, it's a throne to which sinners may come. It's a throne where we find that mercy and grace. Well, what is mercy and grace? Well, a common definition of mercy that I've heard I really liked is not getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. When we come to God before Him, we have sinned against God, rebelled against Him. What we deserve is to be judged, to be destroyed, cast into hell and outer darkness. But in Christ, we find mercy and forgiveness. And we also find something else we don't deserve. We find grace. Grace, getting what we don't deserve. If mercy is not getting what we do deserve, grace is getting something that we do not deserve. We get grace to help us in whatever we are going through. When we sin, He graciously helps us. He forgives us. And He helps us to overcome temptation. A couple weeks ago, we talked about chapter 2, verse 18. Because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. We don't have to fight temptation alone. We can ask Him for help. Beyond that, though, whatever we encounter, if our faith is made fun of, if we get that diagnosis from the doctor that's not very good, if we feel lonely, He offers help. When we need Him most, He will be there for us. If you want proof of that, just if you were at Vacation Bible School this summer, there's one verse you probably memorized because we sang it all the time. But look what the words it says. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And yes, that relates to knowing God through salvation, but it's also something that even when we do have a saving relationship with Him, we can still seek Him and we will find Him. He will hear us and He will act according to His will. This is the help that Jesus offers. And frankly, it would be foolish for us to ignore this. But if we're honest, we often do. We're far better at drifting away from God than we are at drawing near to Him. Because it takes intentional effort to draw closer to God in moments of trial, to depend less on ourselves. Our culture has told us our goal is to be self-sufficient. We're supposed to be independent. But that's not the goal Jesus asked for us. 
He wants us to take advantage of the help that He freely offers to us. As Pastor Spurgeon said again, Beloved, you will often be disappointed if you select a man or a woman to be your confidant. But if you will resort, draw near to the Lord Jesus, the one God has commissioned to be high priest for this very end and purpose, then you will find Him just the friend that you need. In Jesus, you find mercy for when you sin. And you find grace for when you struggle with temptation, despair, and doubt. These are just three verses, but it's, it's an amazing passage directing us to the fact that Jesus went back to heaven. He was tempted as we are, but without sin. And what that means for us is we should hold firm to our faith in Him. And we can draw near to Him in prayer. Because when we do that, we find mercy and grace to help. I'm not a mind reader. I, I don't know each and every problem that each person here or even watching online has in your life. I don't know what you've gone through today, let alone this week, this month, or this year, every single trial and struggle that you've encountered. But here's what I do know, if I can paraphrase The Legend of Zelda one more time. It's dangerous to go alone. Draw near to Jesus Christ. Let's take some time to praise him for the ability to do just that, because he is worthy of that kind of praise.